God does not want and God does not deserve second place in your life. He is worthy of first place, and people continually are bashing up against the first commandment of God. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a biographical study of the prophet Elijah. We have seen various encounters this man of God had with King Ahab and the wicked Queen Jezebel. And today we move into 2 Kings chapter 1 and are introduced to a new king. Today's message is entitled, Making Spiritual Decisions. And in this study, we'll see the new king who suffers a fall, making a wrong spiritual decision in terms of seeking out whether he'll recover. Elijah was a man who lived in difficult days like us. And you know, the Spirit of God loves to preach to us expositionally and biographically through lives, through the lives of people. And he has given us here in this chapter of Scripture another encounter that Elijah has with another king. And here was a man who believed God in difficult times. He was a man who was made out of the same tissue of life as we are. We sometimes paint on these men that there were some supernatural supermen of sorts, especially those few that did miracles in the Bible, like Elijah and Elisha. But the New Testament reminds us he had the exact same nature that we have. Now, if you've been with us in our study, we saw in 1 Kings 17, he suddenly appears on the pages of Scripture without notice, and we will see next time he suddenly disappears as fast as he arrives, as God takes him up into the sky. And sandwiched between his entrance and his exit, is a man who made an incredible, indelible mark in the generation in which he lived. Now, to the casual reader of Scripture, when you come to 2 Kings chapter 1, you might think, oh, it's not that interesting or all that important. But upon careful examination, you will find something in this chapter that will literally transform your life if you have ears to hear. I want to begin reading 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 1. Follow along in your Bible. Now, Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. And Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber, which was in Samaria, and became ill. So he sent messengers and said to them, Go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I will recover from this sickness. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say to them, Is it because there is no god in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed where you have gone up, but you shall surely die. Then Elijah departed. When the messengers returned to him, he said to them, why have you returned? They said to him, a man came up to meet us and said to us, go return to the king who sent you and say to him, thus says the Lord, is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed where you have gone up, but shall surely die. He said to them, What kind of man was he who came up to meet you and spoke to you these words? They answered him, He was a hairy man with a leather girdle bound about his loins. And he said, It is Elijah the Tishbite. Then the king sent to him a captain of fifty with his fifty. And he went up to him, and behold, he was sitting on the top of the hill. And he said to him, O man of God, the king says, Come down. 
Elijah replied to the captain of 50, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. So he again sent to him another captain of 50 with his 50. He said to him, O man of God, thus says the king, come down quickly. Elijah replied to them, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. So he again sent the captain of a third 50 with his 50. When the third captain of 50 went up, he came and bowed down on his knees before Elijah and begged him and said to him, O man of God, please let my life and the lives of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the first two captains of 50 with their 50s. But now let my life be precious in your sight. The angel of the Lord said to Elijah, go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king. Then he said to him, thus says the Lord, because you have sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron, is it because there is no God in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed where you have gone up, but shall surely die. So Ahaziah died according to the word of the Lord, which Elijah had spoken. And because he had no son, Jehoram became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaziah, which he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? Now just to set the stage, let me remind you that humanly speaking, Elijah has been in a battle between wicked king Ahab and his fallen, probably demonically inspired wife, Queen Jezebel, he who represents the living God has been battling this couple. If you remember, they brought misery and grief into the nation of Israel by raising up the banner of Baal. And we are going to read this morning of one of Baal's so-called babies, Baalzebub. And so the good news is, is that when you come to 2 Kings chapter 1, we learn that Ahab has died, and his death is recorded. If you look back first, 1 Kings 22, verse 37, it's just a page over in most of your Bibles. So the king, speaking of Ahab, died, was brought to Samaria, and they buried the king in Samaria. His death, of course, is a fulfillment of a prophecy that Elijah the Tishbite made in 21.9 of 1 Kings. And now the prophecy is being fulfilled. The king died. He's brought to Samaria. He's buried. Verse 38. They washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria and the dogs, just like he prophesied, licked up his blood. And so they know the place. It's the place where the harlots would prepare themselves each evening. According to the word of the Lord, which he spoke. And then we read in verse 39. Now the rest of the acts of Ahab and all that he did in the ivory house which he built, that was his priority, money, greed, and ivory house, wow. And all the cities which he built, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? There's a reference here to what today has been codified as first and second chronicles. Detailed notes were kept of the various kings. And first and second kings took place, if you remember, uh, during the Babylonian exile. They're away in exile, and God writes to remind them that he had not forsaken them, but they had forsaken him. 
Chronicles is written about 150 years later, and it's after they return to the southern kingdom Judah, and it's written to encourage them, to help them to go back to worshiping the one true God. While First and Second Kings deals with both Judah, the southern kingdom, and Israel, the northern kingdom, remember all at one time they were all called Israel, but when the kingdom split as God said it would, the northern kingdom is called Israel, the southern is called Judah. And so both kingdoms are described in First and Second Kings. The focus, however, of Second Chronicles, while the northern kingdom Israel is mentioned, the focus is on the southern kingdom Judah. 29 chapters deal with Solomon and David in the Chronicles. And of course, Judah is highlighted because it's through Judah, that tribe, that the Messiah will come. And so verse 40 concludes Ahab's life with this statement. So Ahab slept with his fathers, and Ahaziah his son became king in his place. He dies, and his eldest son Ahaziah comes to the throne. And it's the classic scenario, like father, like son. There's a change of rulers, but unfortunately, there's not a change in leadership style. And so, in describing Ahaziah, in verse 52, we read, He did evil in the sight of the Lord, and walked in the way of his father, and in the way of his mother, and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin. So he served Baal and worshipped him. When you are serving Baalzebub, you're serving Baal. He served Baal and worshipped him and provoked the Lord God of Israel to anger according to all that his father had done. So Ahab is dead. Jezebel, who introduced this child-sacrificing worship, lives on with her son as king. Now, that's the historical backdrop for what we're going to study this morning. And there are three truths I want us to glean that will help you in making spiritual decisions. Some of you are on the cusp of a major spiritual decision in life as a believer. And let me just say, if you understand Scripture, every decision is spiritual. God never dichotomizes the secular from the spiritual. It's all spiritual. But there are three principles that God wants us, I think, to leave with today. The first principle concerns Ahaziah's disastrous resolution. Now, we can learn from this king's mistake. mistakes. You know, sometimes we want to erase history. God doesn't erase history. He teaches us through history, even the failures of history. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 affirms that principle. Notice how verse 1 begins. Now Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. So 2 Kings, it really opens on a positive note. Unless you think that's some nasty sentiment, it is not. Because again, this king is the one who promoted and allowed Baal worship in Israel. God ultimately holds him responsible as the leader of the kingdom. And of course, he was the one who allowed blatant injustices into the kingdom. If you were here last time, we spoke about the justice of God. We talk a lot today about social justice that has very little to do with biblical justice. So we looked at true biblical justice and what it looked like. If you were not here, you can listen to that message. You can download the Search the Scriptures app on your phone and listen to the whole thing. So this king, who is a wicked king, a Baal-worshipping king, a king who murdered Naboth and stole his vineyard, is now dead. And according to chapter 22, this was a king who hated the word of God. Of course, the good news is that the Ahabs of this world sooner or later die. The bad news in this case is that Ahab Jr. is a chip off of the old dead block. He's just like his daddy. 
So Ahaziah makes a disastrous resolution that's going to cost him his life. And the decision centers around an accident that he has. Notice, if you will, verse 2. And Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber, which is in Samaria, and became ill. Now, the many blinds of those days was basically lattice that was constructed around the top of the roof. In a Jewish home, when you wanted to go out and sit outside, you didn't sit on a front porch like we do in the south. There were stairs that would go up the side of the home, and on the top you would sit on the roof where the cool breezes were prevalent. And of course, typically the king's house was always higher than everyone else's. And this lattice for screening the sun and also for privacy was around the house. And he no doubt was leaning against it, and he fell through it. And he falls to the ground below. Now, we're not told if he hurt his back or if he punctured some internal organ. But we do know, according to verse 4, that he's bedridden. It appears that he's not getting any better. Maybe some kind of infection had set in. In either case, he wants an answer. Look at verse 2. So he sent messengers and said to them, Go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I will recover from this sickness. And that one decision, that one disastrous decision, is going to unfold a series of events that will lead to his death. Now, don't think that his decision to appeal to Baal is some knee-jerk reaction in a sudden emergency. This man was following a false god and was deeply committed to that false god. And Beelzebub was his god of choice. It's his preference. It's not a weakness. Now, you might think that the possibility of his death might wake him up to repent. We saw his daddy, Ahab. He's told he's going to die, and he has a remorse, if you remember. And, and God lengthens his life. It sobered him up. But it doesn't sober this man up. And by the way, there's only one deathbed conversion in all the Bible. God gave us one so that no one would despair, but he gave us only one so that no one will presume the thief on the cross. And if you're a young person and you're toying with God and you're playing with your sin, my friend, you are in a terrible place to be. Because you have no promise that tomorrow Jesus won't come. He could come before this service is over. As we'll see today, you have no promise that God will continue to work in your heart. His patience will eventually run dry. And that's why when Solomon, at the end of his life, he gives a major lesson that he records for us in Ecclesiastes 12 in verse 1, where he writes, Remember also your Creator and the days of your youth. Remember, it's a Hebrew word that means to revere, to obey, to submit to your creator who's the author of life, who gives you life, and who can quickly take it away. So God does not want and God does not deserve second place in your life. He's worthy of first place, and people continually are bashing up against the first commandment of God. And so Ahaziah realizes he's not getting better. He's very anxious. And so he says, well, what about my future? I want to know what's going to happen to me, whether I will get well. So he sends some messages to Beelzebub. Now, by the way, you can spell it Beelzebub, or you can spell B-E-E-L, Beelzebul, as in the New Testament. 
and both is referring to the same false deity. In either case, the prefix tells you what this man is worshiping. He thinks, look, I need to be healed. I want to be healed. I don't want to die. Go find out my future. So they send him over to this city called Ekron. It's a city in Philistia. You can visit it today. And it's a place where the tomb and the, uh, not the tomb, but the, the temple of this false god was erected. And so he sends him over to the god of Ekron. And of course, this god was known supposedly for not only being able to tell you the future, but he's credited with healing powers. Now, if you've been with us in our study, we saw that the word Baal means Lord and Zebub means flies. And so his title, Beelzebub, literally means the Lord of the Flies. And they had, archaeologists have dug it up, literally golden flies that are representative of this false deity that they worshipped. Of course, the Jewish people, because they despised the false worship of these Gentiles, they changed his name as time went on to Beelzebul. And Zebul means dung. And so in mockingly, they said he's the Lord of the dung. And why would they choose that name? Because of the fly god, so to speak, that's associated with him. In this day, remember, it predates antibiotics by millennia. And people would often get sick. And they'd have an open wound. And before long, maggots would lay their lava on that spoiled tissue. And that way, when they're born, they have an immediate source of food. And before long, they'd see all these little crawling creatures on them. And it actually helped to heal them. In fact, some people who are intolerant to antibiotics, you can go on. I was going to show some slides, and I said, no, that's probably too gross. Uh, <laughs> But uh, you can go on WebMD. I remember reading an article in the Wall Street Journal years ago about how maggot therapy is used. Now, I know this is stuff of nightmares, but some doctors will literally take maggots and they'll put it on the wound and it will help speed the recovery because the maggots will not eat the healthy tissue, only the diseased tissue. So people will conclude, Beelzebul, the Lord of the flies, he's healed me. And so they would worship him. So Ahaziah sought Beelzebub. He sent messages whether or not he's going to recover. Now, to fully understand his decision, I want you to fast forward with me eight centuries to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 12. So hold your finger here and go to Matthew's Gospel. There are four Gospels written in the New Testament, not because God has nothing to say, but because he's writing to four specific audiences with different objectives. And Matthew's gospel, of course, is written to Jewish Christians to give them a polemic on how to make a defense for the hope that's within them. Eight centuries later, Beelzebul shows up in Jesus's day, and Matthew records an event that surrounds the mention of his name. Did you find it? Matthew chapter 12, look at verse 22. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him. So that the mute man spoke and saw. A blind, dumb, demon-possessed man is healed. It's a triple miracle. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? See, it was prophesied by Messiah that the very miracles he did, 
Messiah would do, not to mention he would set the captive free. And so these people are stunned. This son of a carpenter from Nazareth had done the kind of miracles that Messiah was prophesied to do. This can't be the son of David, can he? That's one of the messianic titles given in the Old Testament for Christ. They were saying, could this be the promised Messiah? Could this be a fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7? One of David's descendants has finally come, the one we've been praying for for centuries and centuries that he is here to come and to take over our nation. But of course, the Pharisees, they have the same information. They analyze the facts and they come to a different conclusion. Look at verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man casts out demons by Beelzebul. Remember, that's the Greek term for the Hebrew word Beelzebub. He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Notice how they describe Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Now, please note, they don't deny the miracles had taken place. They just refuse to believe and affirm that Jesus is the Messiah. And so they persist in their unbelief. They assert that the power operating in the Lord Jesus is the ruler of the demons, the devil himself, Satan himself. They come to a far different conclusion than Nicodemus did that we studied a few Wednesday nights back. And I find it rather pathetic in our day that there are people who don't believe that there's a real devil, much less demons. There's coming a day when they will discover just how real it all is. Look at verse 25. They accused Jesus of sorcery, and knowing their thoughts, said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. That's an axiomatic axiomatic truth. It's true in any nation. If there's a civil war within, if the disruption persists and pursues long enough, there will be disunity, there will be chaos, and there will ultimately be collapse. Any kingdom, any city, any house. And Jesus takes that principle out of the political realm and he applies it to the spiritual realm here in verse 26. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? For Satan to cast out demons would amount to casting out himself since the demons do his work. So Jesus is asking the Pharisees to explain how Satan benefited by this work. How could Satan benefit by the miracle I just did? Your thinking is very distorted. He's pointing out how illogical and how impractical their thinking is. Verse 27, if I by Beelzebul cast out demons... By whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. Jesus is reminding them of contemporary Jewish exorcists. Not every Jew was an unbeliever. Understand there are many Jews who affirmed Jesus as Messiah. And on the day of Pentecost and the week that followed, where some 25,000 people believe every single one is a Jew. And so there were Jewish exorcists who cast out demons, and the Pharisees themselves taught that they should thank God for such people who had been given that gift. And so he's just reminding them, for this reason, since this is what you teach, you're a bunch of hypocrites. Your own sons will judge you. You're not practicing what you're preaching. By the way, Jesus never denies that Beelzebul is the ruler of the demons. He only denies the false conclusion that they make. Look at verse 28. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, 
then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now understand that when Christ emptied himself, he never ceased to be God. And so this so-called Bethel church that is not a church at all, who says that when Jesus took on our humanity, he gave up his deity, that's heresy. And that's why we will not play their music and we will no longer play Hillsong because Hillsong is closely now affirming Bethel. Jesus never gave up his deity when he emptied himself. He laid aside his divine prerogatives, but he never gave up his deity. So when Wesley said he emptied himself of all but love, please understand, give the man credit as you read the rest of his hymns. He affirmed that Jesus was God in human flesh, but Jesus chose not to live out of his deity, but to live in dependence upon God the Holy Spirit. And so he is saying, listen, if I drive out demons by Satan, then I would certainly not be offering the people of Israel the kingdom of God, but that's precisely what I am doing. The kingdom of God has come upon you. And so he irrefutably proves what, what kingdom he is for in verse 29. Notice. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? By driving out demons, Jesus is proving that he is greater than Satan because he was able to enter the man's house. That is, he was able to enter into Satan's realm of the demonic and take away the spoils of victory. Listen, before a robber can go and rip off a bank, he has to go in. He has to have sufficient power. He has to be able to subdue the guard in order to take over the so-called strong man there in the bank. And the inference here is that if he could enter into Satan's stronghold and deliver people who are captured and under Satan, then he's stronger than Satan. He goes into one of the houses of Satan to a person who's under demonic control. Listen to how Luke records this event. Luke 11, it says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor on which he had relied and distributes his plunder. So Jesus makes it very clear by the illustration that Satan is the strong man. He proves that he is stronger than Satan and that he enters into the house, into the body of a man and casts the demon out, proving that I am stronger than he. And so the Lord refutes the false explanation of the Pharisees. And so he invites the people not to listen to them, but to make up their own decision. Look at verse 30. He says, he who is not with me is against me, and he who is not gathered with me scatters. The same is true today. If you're not with Jesus, you're not for Jesus. You're against Jesus. And if you're not gathering for his kingdom, then by your neutrality, you're scattering. But there is no in-between ground in the kingdom of God. You're either a part of it or you are not. Tomorrow, when we continue our study entitled Making Spiritual Decisions, we'll see how the Pharisees committed an unforgivable sin in attributing the work of Jesus to Beelzebub, or the devil. And we'll see that King Ahaziah's problem was that he failed to go to the one true God, and instead he sought out Beelzebub. This, in turn, sealed his fate. 
To listen again to today's message in its entirety, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program ELI8. Search the Scriptures is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you'd like to join us in growing people in their walk with Christ, click the Give button on the STS app or on the web at searchthescriptures.org or call 877-787-7478. Thank you. Tomorrow, part two of Making Spiritual Decisions. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.